thank you all very much for coming. We know it's a busy week with various commercial rivalries, late shopping, Christmas and so on, but uh, this event is designed to facilitate a discussion at LSE Law. We're trying to get away from the person comes in, the person speaks, the person takes three questions, oops, we've run out of time, the person goes away. So what we're trying to do is get under the skin of contemporary legal issues. We've had quite a lot of success recently. Some might say rather too much success in getting under the skin of legal issues uh, by using a debate format and also this, which is one of my favourite formats, which is the conversation format. And we tie it up. We tie it... I'm not sure that the ethics of nudge is what we're doing. You aren't by any chance, Peter, are you, Mr... Oh, excellent. That's what's called a nudge to our high-tech people. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and we're also using, we're using Twitter. So you're allowed to use your phone, as long as you don't do emails and send text messages, but you're allowed to use your phone in order to say, Professor Geerty has just started, hashtag LSE Jackson, or Mr. Justice Jackson has made an interesting remark, hashtag LSE Jackson. And you'd be surprised, amazing thing, people actually follow this on that hashtag. And so we're encouraging that. And also uh, questions and comments to at LSE Law. So you might have a question, and you might, for example, not bother lifting your hand. You may be one of those people who is very economical in your movements. And you can send a question, which is rather dramatic, uh, which you will get through Bradley, who will be introduced later on. He's our Twitter guru, and more on Bradley later. Uh, So we try and mix up Twitter questions. We've had a large number already uh, with audience questions after the short-ish presentation from Peter. Uh, I I don't know if I said who I am, but there I am, Conor Geerty, and I'm a professor of human rights law here at LSE. And with Bradley, I work on the events side. Uh, I first met uh, Peter as we we were two governors, at a local school, and uh, it's always been uh, my ambition to get uh, Peter into LSE to talk about his work. He's been at the bar for a number of years, uh, Queen's Council, Recorder, Deputy High Court Judge, High Court Judge, uh, quite a while actually, 2010. Uh, there is a lovely thing in Wicked P, which I think he put in himself, claiming that Chambers and Partners describe, you've seen this Peter, have you, as a master tactician who stalks his prey in a very subtle, understated manner. He plays to win and does so more often than not. Chambers. Now, Chambers is the Bible of barristers. I know that because I'm never in Chambers. Uh, And to get that kind of approbation is really tremendous. But, of course, now a judge. And a judge, and this is why I was keen that Peter should come, a judge in this court of protection, this extraordinary jurisdiction which has grown up over time and which we need to address as lawyers and members of the public. And not so long ago, it was a ruling which Peter, I'm sure, will talk about or respond to, where we actually, through Peter, now have the capacity uh, to have journalists at some of these cases. And the cases are cases at the absolute cutting edge of family and illness and mental health, and they have enormous implications, which we'll hear from. So this is no ordinary sort of average court. This is a court that touches the lives of people in the United Kingdom most, in a way, it's an extraordinary way. And, and Peter's, Mr. Just, Peter Jackson is actually sort of the front door for that court. So 
I'm, I'm delighted he's here. And what I, I've anticipated this already, the format is that uh, we're going to have 10 minutes or so uh, introductory remarks from Peter, and then we're going to have Bradley come up and we're going to mix the questions and answers. Don't know, it'll end when it ends. You know. It's not going to go until 10 o'clock. This is not a Castrol speech. But uh, feel free to react to what you hear and let's get under the skin of the Court of Protection. Peter, thank you very much for coming to LSE. Over to you. Thank you very much indeed. Does that um, amplify well enough so that you can hear me easily? All right, thank you. Well, first, some um, truth speaking. Um, I was was just looking at the the list of the sort of people you get speaking um, here, and I recognize half of half of the uh, photographs behind me. Um, that's, not, uh, that's not how I come to be here at all. Um, Connor lied when he said he's been longing to get me to come and speak here. Um, in fact, the way that this happened was as follows. Um, my office is uh, directly beside the LSE. It's the Queen's Building, which backs onto you. Um, and uh, when I got a, an iPad... Uh, the Christmas before last, not one with 3G, but one that needs a, a Wi-Fi. I had it there, and I noticed that I was kept getting the LSE Wi-Fi, so I thought, how am I going to get onto the LSE Wi-Fi? So I got in touch with Connor. I said, can you get me on the LSE Wi-Fi? <laughs> and he said, um, um, well, maybe we can sort something out if you come in and talk to some of my students. <laughs> something like this. So I said, all right, I'll do that. And, um, and then I agreed to do it, and it was all, it was all listed. And it now turns out... There are very strict terms and conditions, and I'm not going to get on the LSE Wi-Fi uh, at all. But I hope um, I'm a master tactician who stalks his prey. <laughs> but I hope that by um, by telling you by telling you this, that I put myself in uh, an, an appropriate um, perspective. Uh, what I'd like to do, um, if I may, is just tell you a little bit about um, the background of somebody who, in, in my case, became a judge. Uh, tell you uh, what I do. Um, in the family division and in the court of protection, which is uh, where family division judges also um, sit. And then maybe throw out a few ideas that might be of interest to you to discuss. But I'm very much um, on for the idea that it would be more useful uh, to everybody, I think, if this was a discussion rather than um, simply um, me answering questions, many of which I won't have anything very interesting um, to contribute about. Um, I um, went the traditional way onto the bench, Um, 30 years at the bar, um, 20 as junior counsel, 10 as a silk, um, and I was appointed in 2010. Um, My career at the the bar has followed um, what has happened to many businesses and professions um, since the Thatcher years, namely having gone from a situation where everybody was meant to do everything. I spent my first 10 years doing uh, almost every type of, um, of, of law on the civil and criminal side and expected to be competent um, in all of it. I did long trials at the Old Bailey, I did possession claims, I did personal injury stuff. Um, always paddling really hard to try and keep up. But the information technology age meant that you couldn't keep up with everything because there was too much. Um, and the consumer, of course, um, uh, reared his her head Um, during this period, and everybody wanted to have a specialist. Um, So I started in the chambers in the temple, which had, I think I was the 14th person to join. Um, And we probably did 14 areas of law. Um, And you would be regarded as a wuss if you couldn't turn your hand uh, to any of them. 
Uh, by the time I left, it was a family law set of chambers, um, which had, I think, 76 people, and we did one thing, um, which was family law, and that's very typical of um, a, a legal career um, during uh, my lifetime. Uh, at, at the end, um, as, as, as Queen's Counsel, I did heavy cases involving um, uh, child, children in care, child abuse, and so forth, and then I had a sort of... Uh, like, like a sort of Chantilly cream on the end. I had five years representing um, A-list celebs in their private disputes, just to finish off with, which was fun. Um, and uh, then I, I joined the, the division, and I've been there now for uh, three or four years. Um, what I'd like to do, if I may, is just to tell you um, what I do um, as a full-time um, working judge. And the, the only thing that I've prepared to uh, bring to this uh, event is to tell you what uh, I've been doing this week and in the weeks um, leading up to it, um, simply by looking in my, my notebook and in my diary to see what the cases have been so that you can understand the, the, the sort of work that comes across our desks. As it happens this week, and we're now on Thursday, uh, I am the urgent applications judge, which the judge who, who, who deals with everything that flies in, comes in, um, and short um, applications. And we do that for a week at a time. Uh, because there are 20 of us, we do it about three times a year or something of that sort. So if you don't mind, um, in case it stirs thoughts in you as to what we're doing, what we should be doing, um, I'll tell you what my week has consisted of so far. Um, in cases of children, I've dealt with cases involving incoming child abductions from Latvia, Poland, Lithuania twice, France, South Africa, New Zealand, Poland again, Slovakia and Estonia. Uh, I've dealt with outgoing child abductions from France, Somalia, Poland and Germany, meaning children removed from the country we're trying to get back. I've dealt with a mother wanting to take her child on holiday to India against the father's wishes. I've dealt with a father having, wanting to have contact with his children, having just announced his gender reassignment. I've dealt with an objection by a women's refuge to providing the address of a runaway wife. A mother's appeal against the making of a care order. I had a short hearing in a case that I heard for three weeks in October. That case involved a 16-year-old give, girl giving evidence for three days by video link about her parents' ill-treatment of her, and this was a um, final part of that. Uh, I've dealt with a case involving a newborn baby whose father has just been released from prison, um, having served a sentence for extreme child and animal pornography. Um, I've dealt with a case about whether a baby um, should go with her reluctant parents to hospital, uh, to hospice to die because she has a fatal heart condition. Um, on the divorce front, I've dealt with applications by two wives, not of the same husband, but they both, in fact, wanted to bring financial proceedings after an Iranian divorce. I've dealt with an application by a rich wife for an early hearing in a big money case. In the Court of Protection, I've uh, been asked to withhold the passport from a mentally ill woman who wants to go and join her husband in Somalia. Um, and topically, um, I gave permission for an emergency caesarean. 
to be performed um, around about now. Um, that's uh, this week, and it's only Thursday, so you can begin to see the sort of range of work um, that is involved. Many of these cases are short applications in the case. Because it's the urgent court, it, it, very few of them are the decisive uh, moment, but you have to read them all, um, and you have to try and understand what's going on. Um, I'm going to go back a week. Um, last week I was sitting in Manchester. I finished an eight-day baby death case, um, finding a father responsible and exonerating a mother as a result of which the child can go home to the mother. The question was whether either parent could be exonerated. I've ordered the return of children to the Gambia. I've awarded damages for the unlawful detention in a care home of a woman with dementia. I've made an order preventing a family using the names and images of children who have been removed from them for adoption um, in internet protests um, or, as they were doing, photographs and names of the children on banners used in public demonstrations outside the courts. So those um, in the course of the last fortnight are the sort of things that I have been up to. Um, so you can sort of imagine that you may get some of, some of those right, but occasionally you may get some wrong. Um, so when people pour over decisions, um, they don't always have uh, to deal with them in the shortness of time that one gets uh, in real life. Now that is one part of, um, of my work. Um, I'm also what's um, known as the Family Division Liaison Judge for the Northern Circuit. The country is divided, as you may know, into legal circuits um, for administrative purposes. And um, the Northern Circuit is one of the large circuits. It stretches from Crewe to Carlisle. And I spend half my working life either in typically Liverpool, Manchester, Preston, or one of the smaller cities in that part of the world. That involves administrative responsibility for the family law work that is carried out there, not um, management responsibility. I don't tell judges what to do, but they can ask me for advice, and then there are issues that arise. In order to try and understand, check my feeling about how much time I spend on that, um, I noticed that if I took out the, um, the silly emails and the personal emails and so forth and looked at what had come into my inbox um, this week, I was left with about 170 emails, um, of which um, uh, I think 45 related to administrative issues um, uh, from my role as the liaison judge um, to the Northern Circuit. Uh, and so um, that aspect of matters, spending half my time not in London and not in my normal court, uh, and also having uh, an administrative responsibility for, I think, something like 100 full-time family law judges um, in the North West takes up a considerable amount of time and is very, very um, interesting. Um, I think that um, the, uh, the message that I'd like to give is that there are judges and there are areas of law where people are fascinated by the law. Um, that you can see from the, the sort of things that I've been talking about that most of these things are not about law, they're about decision-making, they're about um, trying to understand people, trying to get the best possible outcomes for them. And occasionally, um, at, at my level, which is uh, a level which doesn't, in general, make law, um, you have to deal with legal problems. Uh, but when we're thinking about uh, the uh, 
interface between uh, academia and, um, and, and what I actually do uh, were, uh, were, were, were not that close um, that I didn't really realize until I became um, a judge how different it is to spend your whole time having to make your mind up. Um, it's, it's something that you get used to um, you get increasingly used to and you try not to become case-hardened and, um, and, and, and heartless in making your mind up. But of course we all know that making your mind up is something we will try and avoid if at all possible. We would try to keep our options open and not actually plump for something. So having professionally to make your mind up continuously is an interesting, um, is an interesting experience. And it can lead you to be uh, some, sometimes a bit um, um, impatient uh, with people who are obsessed with particular legal issues. Now, we need, um, in, in family law, as much as anywhere else, we need to have um, uh, proper legal principles. Uh, but we need to have them to assist us and not to dominate our thinking. And so if, if questions come in which are legally interesting, then you may get a, 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 a fairly um, a middle or low-grade uh, reply because it's not that that I'm actually most interested in. I'm most interested in uh, the practical procedures that get good outcomes uh, for the people who come uh, before the courts. I think it's, um, if I can throw in an image, um, we, we, we need each other. Um, it's like uh, the motorbike and the petrol, that um, neither of them are any good without the other. But when we're at university, um, when we're thinking about these things, in a disembodied way, then you know, you've, you've got a lot of petrol, but um, it's no good for anything other than for using with some sort of machine, and the machine is the machinery of the law. I used to think when I was a barrister that I arrived at a court and there was a court building provided, there was a judge provided, and it, was all, it just happened to be there. It was like um, you know, air and water. Um, now that I'm on the other side, um, and particularly the administrative side in the, in the northwest, I realise what a huge amount of paddling goes on behind the scenes in order to provide us with a, a system of justice that operates at all. Um, and, of course, nowadays, um, with the, um, uh, the, the, the measures that have um, been taken uh, to, uh, to reduce spending, uh, it becomes increasingly stressful for the judiciary to perform its role um, in the way that it has done um, traditionally. All right. Um, what, what, although I may be looking a bit Thursday evening-ish, um, it, it is very, very interesting that almost always when I read um, something that has a family law flavour or something of that sort, um, I, I, I read it and I think it's not half as interesting as it really is. It's almost impossible to convey um, the, um, the importance to people of some of the situations they get in, the situations that they manage to get themselves in, and um, you know, both... Uh, uh, their stupidity and uh, their magnificent um, determination on, on occasion. It's a very, very interesting area to work in, in my opinion. Um, other, other parts of the uh, legal world I th tend to look down their noses um, at family law. Um, I never studied it, as, as the Court of Appeal, I think, is noticing. Um, but um, <laughs> I do... Um, um, I, I, I do think that it is... Um, a very special area to work in. Uh, for one reason, um, it, there is an unmatched breadth of uh, creativity, uh, 
influence that one can have in the area. I don't know another area of law in which the decision-maker um, is um, in such a, an influential position. Um, can I just um, throw out, but not really develop, um, some points that may be of, of interest to you and you, you may want to um, think about? Uh, one area which is extremely topical at the moment um, is uh, what is, I'm afraid, called transparency. Um, in, in, in our area of work, there is a, a very deep-rooted uh, belief that everything that we do is secret um, and that accordingly it's bad. Um, it, it will, it, that, that perception has grown over quite a long period of time um, and uh, whatever we do and there are things that we're doing which we can discuss if you like um, it's going to take a, a good while to properly um, dispel it uh, but there are at the moment under the leadership of um, James Mumby, the president of the family division considerable efforts being made to um, show what's going on without sacrificing the interests of the people who go through the courts. Um, another area which I think a lot about when I think about these things is um, what we mean by people's best interests, whether we're talking about children, whether we're talking about incapacitated adults, um, and whether decisions about best interests uh, are governed closely enough or whether they are too much left to the individual decision-maker. Uh, the, in, in the end, uh, one keeps coming back in family law to welfare, to best interests, or however you, however you describe it, um, and whether the consensus that we have about those matters is one which um, would reflect the public mood at large or, or, or not. Um, and, uh, and I think the last thing, which I would like to retire with a better understanding of, um, is how we make our minds up. Um, I would like one day to have time to get the best possible understanding of what is actually going on inside our heads when we think about something, and then there's always a moment where you think, that's it. It may come very early in a case. Uh, it may come almost when you read the first page. It may take you days um, or even weeks to reach a conclusion. But what it is that goes on when we decide... Um, you can tell that I'm trying to steer you away from hard law. But um, uh, if, if there are uh, questions of any kind, um, I'd be glad to discuss them with you. But uh, frankly, I'm just as interested in um, uh, hearing your views uh, as giving you mine. Wonderful. Wonderful. Peter, thank you. thank you so much. I mean, I have to say I've been doing events for a very long time in various universities. And that moment we went through your diary and was describing a week when it sounded like 20 years of the hardest cases was really extraordinary. And you've ended, we'll get Bradley up in a minute, but I want to just pursue this point about making your mind up, because you've slightly anticipated what I was thinking about listening to you was how you do it, because the law you say sort of is there, you know, and you're taking a view about facts, and you're interrogating yourself as to how you get to that view, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Do you get a feeling that you have this incredible power over people and there's some tremendous responsibility that goes with it, or have you probed how you come to decisions? Well, of course, um, you've, you've got people in front of you. Um, 
it's quite, quite different, as, as we all know. Um, deciding things in, um, uh, in, in an exercise or a training exercise um, and actually having to make a decision about something that's actually, that's actually going to matter. So I, I don't think that, uh, that any of us in, in this area would last any length of time if we didn't um, uh, relate to the people who are in front of you in, 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 in some way. Um, apart from anything else, you're, you know, you're facing them. You may be facing them for you know, an hour, a, a day or a week uh, or even longer. And so uh, you cannot help but be aware that sometimes you're going to say some things that are going to be life-changing for them. And uh, that makes you want to work hard to make sure that you get it right. Um, how you um, make your mind up, it, it happens... I, I, I really don't think I can... I can say except that you're aware that there's a moment where it's as if you've been in a clothes shop or you've been trying stuff on and you, you try this on, you try that on and uh, you discard them one by one and then sometimes you get something and you think, well, that fits. And then you, you, know, you turn around in the mirror and you see if it still fits, etc., etc. Um, but um, the, I remember recently I wrote a judgment in a case which just, it was simply, had something happened or not? Um, it was an event that, if it had happened, would have happened 30 years ago. And there was a large number of witnesses. Um, one or two might have been telling the truth, but I don't really remember. Mostly weren't. Um, and you had to decide whether something had happened or not. It was binary. Um, and I particularly wanted a certain outcome. I was hoping for a certain outcome because it was just... Um, which is a very poor way of approaching a fact-finding task, and I caution myself for the future. But I wrote the judgment and I wrote the conclusions. Um, and I went to bed and I read it the next morning. And I read the conclusions again and I just thought, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I tore up the last two pages which had the conclusions in them. I wrote the opposite conclusion. I read it again. It fitted like a glove. And so with a heavy heart, that was, that was it. Um, so... There are various ways you can go about doing it. You talk to your colleagues, of course. Um, you don't ever talk to a colleague who would tell you what to do. There are few enough of those. You, you talk to the people that you get help from. Um, and, of course, other people's cases are almost always easier than one's own. Mm. You talked about sleeping on the case and changing it. Do you ever, and of course it hadn't been issued, do you ever have these feelings, crikey, I was wrong about that one. Do these cases incredible array of cases with these impacts on individuals. Do they linger in the mind? Do they stay? I don't, I don't think that they can unduly linger in the mind. I think that you would um, just get bowed down. Yeah. Um, so I, I, do, I think you have to make your mind up, do your best to get it right, and move on. I mean, certainly uh, at the bar, uh, my feeling was that you put the work in and that provided you put the work in, then you were not responsible for the outcome of the case. What you didn't want to do was walk out of court thinking, if I'd worked harder, my client would have done better. And so that was the, uh, that was the process. It's the same sort of, uh, sort of thing. I think that you would have difficulty sleeping if you felt, well, I, I, I just um, busked my way through that case and didn't really think about it. And, uh, and then you might have a moment of um, conscience, or I'm sure you would. Yeah. Um, but it's... It, the. Another thing that uh, you will notice um, is that we appoint judges pretty old. Um, and the higher you are up the judicial tree, the older you get appointed on the whole. Uh, and that has pros and cons, which 
um, could be discussed with, uh, particularly with lawyers from other countries. But it is a different process to the process of being an advocate. When you're an advocate, my image in, in my mind was uh, that you start here and then you build up your knowledge of a case to 100%, or the best it can be, on the moment the case starts. And you, at the moment the case starts, you're at 100%. And you then download to the point um, where you sit down for the last time and then it's over, it's over to the judge. And at that point, provided you've done your best, then nobody can blame you for the outcome. Um, if you are the judge, on the other hand, if you're starting a case, then you want to be starting around you know, 20%, 25%, or something of that sort. You want to have thinking space. You want to know broadly what's involved, uh, but you do not want to prepare it like an advocate. Um, when I was an advocate, if there was a piece of paper in a case, however big it was, that I didn't know what, where it was and what it said, um, it gave me um, feelings of great um, anxiety. Um, a case I did recently, which lasted for, for some weeks, you know, there were the usual 20 lever arch files and stuff. I was entirely happy that there were probably six or eight of those lever arch files that I never had to open. I had really good people in front of me, if they weren't going to take me there, I didn't need to go there. I had everything that I needed um, as a result. But what you're doing is you're building up from a low base at the beginning of the case, the point where you have to give judgment, whereupon you have to be at 100% um, at that point. Mm. And if you're not at 100% at that stage, then you're going to lose sleep. Yeah. It's, better for old, it's better for older people because you don't have the, the moment of anxiety at the beginning of a case. The, the case starts when somebody else tells you. Uh, the case finishes when you say. Yeah. And so that is uh, one... A good thing yeah. about being on the other side. Great, great. great. Well, we're going to open it up in a different kind of way. Can we ask Bradley, who's uh, our Twitter guru, who's created this whole fantastic framework, to come up? And Bradley, I think we'll, just, we'll take one. You've anticipated the point, I think, Peter. We'll take a Twitter question, which should be replete with a picture of Mr. Justice Jackson, of which he's very I, proud. I most strongly object. <laughs> he attempted a bit of pre, pre-session censorship. We denied him the right to remove this picture. But uh, we have a question. Bradley. Do indeed. So our first question comes from Sabine McNeil and asks, how can family judges be made to follow the law? I think it's a reference. You may know it's a reference to an article which said that Mr. Justice Mumby had tried to get judges to be more open and they hadn't been open. Well, it's a broad question, which you could uh, read in many ways, and um, you probably ask it in in one sense, but I'll answer it in a a sense that occurs to me. Um, How do you get judges to follow the law um, to make it as clear and simple as possible? Um, That uh, if if I've read you a list of things that I've done, um, then you should go to talk to the district judge in the St. Helens County Court and ask him to tell you what he's been doing. And he's probably been doing a lot more um, during his last couple of weeks uh, than I've been doing in terms of numbers of cases and people passing in front of him. I think we have a difficulty at the moment with the increasing length of um, judgments from uh, the uh, upper courts, including, I point the finger at myself insofar as I ever um, have anything to say of that kind, um, and we're asking a, a huge amount of family judges, as, as well as other judges, by um, every second week there being another 40 or 50 pages um, coming from above that they're expected to absorb. I'm a strong believer in there being executive summaries at the beginning of judgments of any importance so that um, both um, 
judges who are hard-pressed, but even more particularly because we're getting so many more of them, um, unrepresented litigants um, should uh, have the law presented to them in an accessible way and not have to go to paragraphs 76, 102 and 180 in order to see what this is all about. Uh, So that would be a fairly anodyne uh, response. Um, if, If the implication is that Um, family judges just go off on a frolic of their own and don't um, observe um, the law, Um, then I'm sure that um, we could point to instances where things have gone wrong. Um, If you multiply the sort of things I've been talking about in my own list across the country as a whole, that's a lot of cases. Um, And there may very well be things that um, that go wrong. But I'd I'd be interested... um, um, Sabine McNeil, if there's anything particular that lies behind this that I can properly... Um, comment on. Yeah. It was Christopher Hooker's article. You raised that question. You um, um, wrote another one where he said, so James Bumby has a hard uphill struggle because what he recommends in terms of um, especially recommending um, Sabine, we're now going to give you a microphone, and though we know who you are because we have a Twitter photo of you, you might say, for the, for the benefit of the rest of us, if you feel able to, as it were, who you are. Well, my name is Sabine McNeil, yes. and I am a co-founder of the Association of Mackenzie Friends, where oh, yes. the necessity arose partly through these uh, cuts that you were also referring to. And um, uh, this particular question arose from Christopher Booker's article because lots of, if you like, less senior judges seem to do, I just do whatever this is in my court, kind of. And, and who cares what Sir James has put in the famous Baby J judgment where he appeals to courts to respect, um, to adapt to the realities of the Internet, particularly social media. And in that particular case, a father had published on Facebook how his baby was violently removed, a video, and he risked imprisonment. And there are still oodles of parents out there. And that's why I I asked, um, and in sort of as a web voice for Christopher Booker. Thanks. Well, I I, I understand the the, the context um, of of the case, um, of of the question, and I, of course, know about the the case um, that you mentioned. Thoughts that come to um, to my mind are these. Um, I'm not going. To, uh, I, I, I'm not going to get into an argument about um, Mr. Booker's beliefs um, in a forum of um, of this kind. Um, he has strong views um, about the family courts, um, and uh, he's entitled to them. Uh, the, the better informed commentators of that kind are, um, the more valuable their views um, will be or will become. So far as the um, particular instance of um, social media, um, is, it's a huge area for family law. It's transforming uh, family uh, law and family approaches in just the way that it's transforming families. I mean, family law, after all, is bound to, um, to follow uh, what happens in family life. Um, but I think you would probably be alarmed if it was... Um, absolutely moving at the same pace or indeed was getting ahead of it. Um, We we will take time to adjust to the consequences of social media. It means that everything that is said is recorded in slow motion and forever. Um, And even a relatively entirely insignificant event like this um, will, if there isn't a neutron bomb, be accessible 
you know, any number of decades into the future. Um, and you know, it, it affects how we act, it affects how, how we speak. In the course of your uh, explanation, you uh, showed a family judge going, I just go like this and I go like that. Um, if, if I had any sense that a judge in the Northwest was behaving like that, um, you know, it, 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 I deal with it within the day. Um, I, I have not, in my experience, come across anybody with that sort of attitude um, working in this sort of field. Um, there may be individual instances, of course. You've got hundreds of judges operating in an extremely pressured area of work. Um, my own experience um, as an outsider to the Northwest, um, and speaking only of the area I, I, I now know quite well, um, is of judges who really want to get it right, judges who are doing their best to keep abreast of all developments, whether they come from the Court of Appeal behind them or from um, interest groups and um, commentators in front of them, and to still try and keep an even keel for the, for the families concerned. I don't recognise the account of bombastic arrogance, although I'm sure that there are individual instances um, of it. Um, clearly the President, um, Sir James Munby, is... Uh, at the forefront of trying to make people think about um, former practices. Uh, I don't think that that's limited to family law. I think it's something that all professionals in all areas are having to do um, day in, day out. Okay, good. Okay, look, thank you. We, we're good. We've got a microphone, as you've seen. And remember, it's, it's not just questions. I mean, we, we, we remember that. It's discussion comments, observations. If you can, like Sabine, just say both who you are and whether you have a... It was interesting to know the background you have. Uh, do we have anybody who'd like to forego Twitter and put, I believe it's called, a hand up? <laughs> a hand up. You see, we're all the new generation that Peter's talking about. Do we have anybody kick us off? Yes, thank you very much. And then we might take one or two more. Uh, just who you are and... and uh, well, um, my name is Brunella Longo. I'm an information management consultant. I've um, been living in this country for five years now. I went through a really devastating property case, and um, uh, probably because of this, experience, this personal experience, um, I definitely... Um, Change my mind in respect of the uh, transparency issue you mentioned in your speech. Uh, so I was wondering, what's the point in not providing public data, uh, for instance, um, about uh, power of attorney? Um, making everybody who, who can deal with um, properties or affairs of the disabled individual that the law should protect capable to understand the wider context in which they may be led to wrong decision because in my case it was the missing data 
that made me decided to trust a person who promised okay. to sell something in a, yeah. in a in a in a dodgy way. I think in I think respect I'm, of our. I think we I think we've got it. So I, if you don't mind, I'm going to pull in another question. No, no, question. I finished. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's you. the question. Thank you very much. Why? why? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've got another question in front here. I think uh, if you could just, even though obviously I know, just yeah, here. And then we might take another one if you're encouraged to ask a question, and then we go back. Sir, at the back after you. Uh, Tom, right at the back, yeah. Uh, um, okay, so this, this question is quite... Um, oh, sorry, I'm Julie McCandless. I'm a lecturer in family and medical law at um, LSE. So welcome to LSE this evening. Um, this is quite a different question. I'm co-director of a project um, involving feminist legal scholars where we're trying to put ourselves in the shoe of, of a judge of an appellate court judge and rewrite um, key decisions in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, there's been a project like this involving um, English Court of Appeal and um, House of Lords Supreme Court cases, and we're trying to do something similar in the, the, the different Irish jurisdictions. Um, in, in some ways, it's it's a bit of a of a false situation. We can never quite be in the in the, um, the shoes of a judge, as your list of what you, you deal with on a weekly basis there indicates. But I was just wondering um, if you had maybe five top tips or five suggestions for how an academic could get themselves into the mindset of, of thinking like a judge or a- approaching this um, task of something that we as academics are not particularly familiar with. Fantastic. Or some of the restraints that we may have to... Bear in mind, it may not be obvious to us. And I'm going to make sure he gives five top tips. Not, not going to wait ten, two or I'll three. Take ten. There's a gentleman right at the end, and then we'll go back to Peter, and then we'll take some tweets. Sir, telling thank us you. who you are and yes, thank you. Uh, I'm Dr. Paul uh, De Silva, Dave De Silva. Uh, I'm living through this right at this moment, you know, and it's mysterious how I discovered this space and came here because uh, I have two grandkids in Spain. I'm British for 50 years, some <laughs> nearly. Uh, and I have two grandkids uh, in Spain uh, f- from the Spanish mother. Uh, wow, she's European and so on. And of course, these two grandkids are my uh, eldest son's uh, daughters, five and ten, uh, most beautiful, etc. cetera. Um, and through a mid- misadventure here, right in the courts next door, as you said earlier, all right. Uh, my family happened to sep- separate uh, in very good spirit, of course. Yeah, I, there was no problems there. I, I pursued further on. I, I've set a world record going to Spain 200 times. That's 100 up, 100 down. You know, that's 200, right? To pursuing the children and so on. I made sure that my children grow up and they are fine now. But these two grandkids, 5 and 10, so beautiful as they are, I have not seen them yet. And they have, more importantly, they haven't seen me. So there's a huge moral, uh, sentimental uh, issue here. And uh, in fact, I have a flight booked for Saturday to go to Spain, trying to see them. Uh, but I may not be able to because I find that I'm you know, struggling with my life more recently in the past few months. I have a cold and all these things also. So uh, what is the access? Uh, what do I do really? What access could I have uh, in this situation? Uh, access to grandkids we are talking about, really. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I don't, it could be straightforward or not. No, I don't know. It's a really interesting one, and it's a, I suppose more, the more general point, really. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then, and then we we'll come to it. But take those in your own. I'd like to pursue this to the end. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Silver. Thank you. Uh, this vividly illustrates the sorts of difficulties that um, the courts entertain. Um, it's, it's, I'm afraid to say, an entirely familiar state of affairs. Uh, as to um, any other thoughts about it, uh, what we have experienced, along with all the other changes that have been mentioned, um, is, of course, the interna internationalization of life, um, so that, uh, as you can tell from the sorts of comings and goings that I listed uh, earlier on, uh, we have uh, huge numbers of uh, relationships and marriages across, across boundaries which were inconceivable um, in, the, um, in the years shortly after the last war. Um, and the, the situation where one, one has uh, children who are uh, grandchildren, who are uh, beloved, who are, who are at a distance, and uh, one has difficulties in, in, in seeing them is an absolutely classic um, problem. Uh, I, I'm not here to offer um, advice, but I do offer sympathy. Uh, it's very, very difficult, of course, for uh, any court in this country to exercise any real influence over um, uh, the courts in other countries um, unless the child has um, very newly departed um, from, from here. So it, it's undoubtedly um, a, a, a difficulty, um, and um, you, you, you have my sympathy. Can I um, uh, uh, deal with the um, first point next, which is to do with um, another unfortunate experience? Um, the sort of transparency that I was talking about was um, trying to make sure that people understand what's going on in their name in, in, in courts um, without um, making the courtroom such a, a hostile environment for, for children and for, for, for families that it becomes distorted. Um, what you're talking about, I, I think, is uh, proper public information about the um, routes that might be available for people to avoid litigation. Uh, I never in the time that I was at the bar, uh, and I haven't changed my view since, um, ceased to wonder at people's optimism when they go into relationship breakdowns when they go into trying to sort them out, they always seem to think that it's going to be possible, it's going to happen quickly. Generally, by the time in my later career people reached me, um, it was chronic. It, it was a situation which uh, was so far beyond their worst um, fears um, that they really couldn't recognize themselves. It changed their entire, their entire lives. Um, I think that one thing that, uh, that, that I've learned is that divorce, relationship breakdown, is far, far worse than people think it's going to be. Uh, they never realize how much it's going to pain them. Uh, they never realize how much damage it's going to do. Um, and um, they haven't got the faintest idea of how expensive it is. Um, I, I would sit with the best possible um, uh, advisors, um, and we would talk about how much uh, this was all going to cost, and even if they said it was going to cost several hundred thousands of pounds, um, my feeling, which I often shared with a client, was, well, you can at least double that. 
Um, and if you think things are bad now, they're going to get a lot worse. And so I'm very much with you in terms of public information. People, of course, think that um, there are structures for helping them out of relationship breakdown. Um, th- th- they then go on very often, and I wondered whether this was behind your question, but it wasn't, to say, well, it was actually the court's fault um, because it's so bad. Um, I think that uh, that there's something to be said for uh, the criticisms of the court court process. But in the end, um, people are in a terribly, terribly bad place when they uh, have um, uh, relationship breakdown followed by litigation. The last um, matter to deal with more briefly um, is uh, the question of how to write your your rewritten judgments. Um, I I have uh, five suggestions, uh, which uh, which are firstly that you should try and arrange to go and spend some time with a working judge um, and uh, see it from uh, the other point of view. It's very different sitting on the bench than it is sitting at the bar. It's an entirely different view. Um, And for you to do that um, would, I think, help you. And then my other four suggestions is that I do it four more times with four different judges. <laughs> I think this is an example of what made him the master tactician, isn't it? Very good. Marvellous. We're going to take a couple of tweet, tweets, and there's a lot of people catching eyes, already three people. So we'll take the next two yep. tweets, maybe, and you can... I'll try and answer more shortly, I'm sorry. And as, oh, no, no. We, the great thing about this format is we have the time, you see. Yes, so, but shut yeah, me up. Yeah. A okay. uh, couple of tweets. I think you might have them written down. Have I got something? Yeah. So the next one is from Joseph Spooner, who asks... How does Mr. Justice Jackson see the media's role in court reporting, particularly in digital slash online age? Very positively. Um, That responsible reporting of um, what goes on in court can only um, help. Um, But unfortunately, there are are many obstacles um, in the way of of achieving that happy state of affairs. Uh, The first is that Perfectly understandably, the media are only interested in certain sorts of cases. Uh, that uh, they're not uh, interested in re- reporting on the run-of-the-mill, day-to-day work of the courts, which affects so many people. They're interested in reporting uh, the uh, exceptional cases that af- af- affect the few, the very few, and usually uh, the, the celebrities. Uh, they, these cases are, by definition, um, Exceptional. Um, they're, they're not uh, the, the sorts of things that go on normally. Um, it's quite hard, even when you uh, go at it deliberately, um, to get uh, an absolutely clear report of a, uh, of, of, of a case that has been heard in court. Uh, I had a case yesterday which was reported today Um, And I noticed with interest that one of the comments on the report in one of the main newspapers um, was uh, what what an inappropriate headline for a story of this kind. The the story was uh, about the caesarean operation. um, And the narrative in the piece was was entirely fair. um, And the sub-editor had put on um, women forced to have caesarean. Uh, at the top, now, I don't. You know, I, I actually hadn't even noticed that that's what uh, had been said, uh, but it wasn't what it was about in any fair sense of the word. Um, and so there are 
many obstacles to that. But I think, on the whole, uh, that the individual journalists are wanting to be responsible, that they do not want to cause unnecessary grief to the people involved, but that there is a commercial process at work. One, one of the tweets we got, Peter, was about TV cameras in the court. Is this something which fills you with a kind of horror, or are you pretty relaxed about it, or would it need to be controlled, in particular the kind of cases you've described? The TV cameras at the moment are only in the uh, Court of Appeal, and they're uh, simply footage of the judges doing their work and I think probably the backs of counsel's heads mm. making, making their submissions. So it's not um, very um, high audience television. Mm. Um, I would have considerable concerns about TV cameras being in court during the course of a case because I think that it would be very distorting um, to ask people to talk about intensely private things um, with the feeling that they're being recorded. I'm, uh, and, and I have been ever since... I've known that this was going to be filmed, um, affected by the fact that what I, uh, I'm going to say is recorded. Yeah. I'm much more guarded in anything that I will say to you than, than I would be if I was talking to you uh, privately. Uh, it's inevitable. So yeah. in my field, I don't think that it has anything to offer. Um, I do think that the media doing its best to portray um, seriously what takes place in the court um, is to be hoped for, but until we get that, uh, what it's doing at the moment, I think, is on balance helpful. Okay, great. We'll take a few more. There's this lady who's caught my eye. Who's, no, wait a sec, wait. And then there is uh, this lady whom I know but won't say I know because I shouldn't know anybody or everybody. Can you get up here with the microphone? And there was another lady who began to catch my eye, but I'm beginning to think I need to favour some men. So a man has the chance now to scoop. Sir, well done you. You are relegated on grounds of gender. <laughs> no, stop. You have got a microphone. We'll try and get you a bit later on if you don't mind. Uh, now, it's going to be pretty sh- as quick as you can be, but Madam, say who you are. Very quick. My name is Marion Roberts. I am qualified as a barrister, but I work and have worked for 30 years as a family mediator. But I just wanted to signpost uh, Dr. De Silva to the um, European network of mediators, the uh, specially trained family mediators who may well be able to help you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And you will make contact briefly at the end of the evening. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you. Next, as it were. Thank you. Um, I'm Helen uh, Rees, um, also a family lawyer from the LSE, so likewise welcome. Um, I mean, this question's not unrelated, and it was really prompted by what you were saying about relationship breakdown before and how it's often, you know, worse even than people expect. And I just wondered, as um, a judge, particularly looking at family law cases, do you ever feel um, this just isn't a legal problem. I'm, I'm not qualified here. This isn't something, you know, whatever I decide, it's not really susceptible to a solution within the remedies that I, within the options I have before me, because we've got a human relationship problem or a problem that needs um, some form of um, social work intervention or perhaps some money thrown at it or something that isn't really susceptible to the law. And how do you respond to that if you, if you do feel like that? Thanks, and, and I've relented because the first was an observation, so you can get ready for your question. And I'm also afraid if there's legal actions could be taken against me. But, sir, uh, microphone and just say who you are and then question, please. I'm not a family lawyer. I'm a, I'm a barrister. Um, can I just ask you two do you, things? Do you want to say who you are? You Sorry, Jerry Fallin. Jerry, yeah. thank you. 
Um, can I just ask you, what's your view on Preston Prest? Now, I'm not a family lawyer, but I do a lot of uh, corporate uh, global crime. And obviously the issue of uh, piercing the corporate veil, although Lord Justice, uh, Lord Walker didn't like the term. What's your view on Preston Prest? Do you think it is going to be the landmark decision for a long time? And secondly, I don't know whether you, you, you'll be able to answer this, Judge, but uh, um, there's a lot of pressure on the judges, as you've intimated, um, and um, how can I put it? Do you think this in, on, ongoing pressure is actually going to stop people going to the bench now? Mm. Um, just for those that may not know, um, for example, judges at the moment have got all kinds of issues over their pensions, etc., etc. And uh, talking to mates of mine on the, on the bench, there's a feeling of, um, well, let's put it this politely, disgruntlement. And I was wondering, on a day-to-day level, are you, uh, is that impacting, if I can use that Americanism, on uh, morale on the bench? Great. Okay, we're going to get the other question. I'm reminded to have two answers, one with the camera on and the other with the camera off, but I, <laughs> I don't think I can technically do that. Uh, have you got your microphone? Uh, yes, I think Very I, good. I, I have. Going? Thank you, and it's on. Um, my name's Chloe Strong. I'm a media and entertainment law barrister at 5RB. Uh, a substantial amount of my practice is advising newspapers pre-publication at the moment. Um, I appreciate you probably can't talk about the Pacieri case in particular, but um, I wonder this. Uh, the journalists were getting very excited with the fact that there were some things that they could report on, albeit there were some things that were also held back. Is there going to be an emphasis at the Court of Protection now to let more journalists into more cases, um, albeit they're only the accredited ones anyway that are allowed to get in in the first instance? And is there going to be further training given to judges on giving um, very detailed reporting restrictions such that it, uh, we are able to open the court up as much as possible, um, but without, um, as you said in response to the first question, causing the families concerned undue um, harm and distress. Brilliant. Thanks. Peter, over to you. Well, starting um, with, with, with Chloe's point, the situation with um, the press and the, and, and the courts that I sit in um, is a strange one, leaving aside some discrepancies in the rules. Uh, The general position is that if it's a case of any importance, uh, then uh, the press are entitled to be there, and indeed in some areas they're entitled to be there full stop. Uh, That that is a a right, so that I have to let a a card-carrying journalist into my court unless I've got a very, very good reason um, to exclude them, and I've never done that. Uh, The... um, Practicalities of it, however, are this. Uh, the days when you had cub reporters sitting at the back of magistrates' court routinely chronicling uh, the peccadilloes of, uh, of, of, the, of the village um, have long since gone. That The press cannot afford that. And so <coughs> they are extremely thinly spread um, and only go to places where they think that there's going to be a story. Um, and so the result of that is that there is a right which is not really being um, used for reasons which are perfectly understandable but are nothing to do with the, um, any exclusions that, um, that we apply. <clears throat> As to reporting restriction orders, um, these are only necessary in cases um, where there's going to be quite a lot of publicity but you don't want people to be able to identify the individuals involved. You want them to be able to report the story and as much information as is possible to make the story interesting but without sacrificing the, um, the unfortunate people who are involved in the case themselves. I, I haven't, um, as somebody who makes a lot of these orders and tries to make them as minimal as I possibly can, um, come across any 
insoluble difficulty with dealing with the press. If I make an order and you're advising uh, one of the titles, um, you can get in touch with me and you can say, is this allowed or is this not allowed? Uh, it's perfectly possible to do that, and I've engaged in many discussions with um, uh, the legal editors of, uh, or the legal managers of, um, of newspapers about what is and what is not um, to be covered. And then when the order is made, it's clear. So if you're having problems with that, that's a soluble um, problem. Um, in relation to transparency as you raise it, um, there is a big move that is about to take place, the publication of judgments anonymously in the family courts um, with um, uh, fairly, uh, fairly immediate effect, I, mean, I would expect it within uh, a few months at most. This will lead to a vast amount of information coming to the public domain, which will probably just sit there. Um, but uh, that, that's, that, that's not the, uh, the reason. Um, personally, I publish every judgment I write, unless there is a very strong reason not to. It's very tiresome for other people, but uh, I think that that's the way we ought to be doing it. Um, can I move on to, um, um, to, to, to your question, Jerry? Um, the second bit I can't read, but it'll come back to me. <laughs> the first bit is pressed. Well, you've got me on an Achilles heel here. Um, there are several of us um, in the division who are money case specialists. I'm not one of them. I keep waiting for my first big money case, but they never give it to me. I'm probably, on the other hand, the only person who ever got any money out of Mr. Prest because I did make a committal order in respect of his non-disclosure and fined him uh, when he uh, failed to comply. Uh, so uh, I don't think anybody else so far has received anything as a result of that litigation. On your serious point um, to do with uh, whether this will be an enduring um, monument to uh, how the corporate veil is to be regarded, um, your guess is much, much better than mine, I'm afraid. Um, it, it was a judgment which, with respect, I could understand as a non-specialist and seemed to hold a balance between um, respecting corporations and trusts for the importance that they hold in society generally while not allowing um, people to be made fools of um, by uh, shams and um, artificial creations that were there only to, to sort money away from um, the taxman or from the usually wife. So I'm sorry not to be of any interest on that topic. Now, what was your second Jerry's point? Illegible, Jerry's illegible one was about whether Jerry's mates are right not to dream of going to the bench and whether you, ah, lot, yes. whether you lot are disgruntled yes. and talk of nothing else when there's nobody listening. Um, I'm talking about the serious cutbacks the yes. effect yeah. on the morale and the expediency yeah. of the bench to do their job. Well, the first thing I, I hope you, you'll understand is that I, I have no position or standing to speak about this in any formal official capacity at all. I, I'm very happy to, to share my uh, experiences of this, which is that the judiciary consists of probably, in, in this instance, probably about 1,100 people nationwide. What we're talking about here is the most important level, the district judges, the people who are in the local, the local courts, I guess 400. Uh, you're talking then about circuit judges, the, uh, the level above that, 600. You're talking about high court judges, 100. Uh, and the Court of Appeal, 35. And the Supreme Court, 10. 12 or whatever. Um, so you can imagine that as between those uh, different groupings of people, there are very different responses uh, because they have different, uh, different priorities. They have different uh, salaries. 
um, apart from anything else. Um, in in uh, my experience, uh, some people have taken this very hard. I can think, for example, of um, two youngish, by which I mean in their 40s, judges that I know who are married to each other, uh, who joined on a promise that they were going to get such and such a package, and um, now find they're going to get such and such minus 30% or whatever it is once you add it um, all up. They're not best pleased. Um, then um, you've got others who are um, uh, who, who have um, saved for the future and find that their savings are of no assistance to them any longer and they're fed up about that. Um, so the, you, 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 I think the in, individual uh, will have d- different responses. One thing that is particularly painful to all of us, I think, is this. Um, the changes that have been brought in, in common with many other public service changes, and the judiciary is a public service, um, ha- discriminate, and I use that word not pejoratively, um, on the basis of age. In other words, they, they cut in at a certain age. I'm 58 years old. Uh, I am old enough that I'm not in the 25% of judges um, who are really being very hard hit. Um, and um, so I'm, in that sense, lucky. I'm not sure I wouldn't rather be two years younger and take the hit, but um, that's just a personal, a personal matter. As to the overall effect of this, um, people's views differ, uh, that there is a, a, a strong and well-argued point of view that if you um, don't maintain the uh, standing, including the financial standing of the judiciary, um, then you somehow reflect a... a uh, uh, the fact that the, the nation doesn't think um, that this is particularly important and that it will gradually atrophy like the, uh, the rule of law itself. Um, there are others, and I think I put myself in this category, who are more optimistic um, about this. I'm on, I think, 173,000 uh, a year for what um, I've told you I do, um, and I'm afraid I, I consider that that is, um, I'll say, enough, and you may think... Uh, it's more than enough. Uh, but uh, that is the sort of uh, figures that we're talking about at my level. It's lower and it can be higher. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, um, in the great scheme of things, there, was, there has been a fear that we won't get good people applying to be judges. I, I'm afraid I haven't... I say, I'm afraid. I, mean, I say it to those who held that fear. I haven't seen that happening. And indeed, there are competitions going on at the moment for um, senior judicial office which have um, got people queuing around the block to take part even though there may be others who would have been in that queue who are not, um, who are not in it and, and Helen's point about it basically getting it right kind of not law, this stuff yes, um, yes. Yeah. well almost all, all the solutions that one comes up with in a particular case are the least worst solutions um, because if you have to make a decision for somebody then it's never going to be the best decision um, people ought to um, if possible, make their own decisions. I mean, can you imagine how demeaning it is to have other people making decisions about your children? I mean, it shows you how bad things have got um, in some ways before that should, that should happen. Um, so I, I agree with you that there are sometimes um, no particularly attractive solutions and that compromises have to be, um, have to be reached. Um, I did have an instance in... Uh, a case which had been going on, I think, for 10 days and was due to go on for 12, where um, a judge came into court at the beginning of day 11 and said, um, I've been thinking about this over the weekend. 
And I realize that if I listen to uh, the parties for another two days, um, then I will probably learn a little bit more. But I don't think it's going to lead me nearer to a solution. Um, I'm going to stop this hearing. I'm not going to make a decision. Go away. It was inspired, as far as I can see. (laughs) The, The jaws sort of dropped. And then we thought, well, we're going to have to agree something. Mm. So uh, I, I think there are some insoluble cases, and uh, that was certainly one of them. Yeah. Uh, sorry, should we take a tweet yeah. and then another round? There's a lady over here who's caught my eye. Uh, we're getting towards a time when we'll have to draw to a conclusion, by the way, so this might be your last chance to catch my eye. There's a lady there. We'll take those two and the tweet together. <clears throat> so the tweet one, which should be behind you should be Josh Batat who asks what does the legislation to allow same sex marriage in England and Wales mean for family law and legal decision making possibly it can be quickly answered yeah well it's it's great um, instead of having the same old situations coming up you've got some exciting new situations Um, I can assure you that the breakdown of same-sex relationships is not conducted in in, in any more civilised way than the breakdown of any other relationships. Um, And uh, it's, um, I think, completely neutral so far as the law is concerned. It's an instance of the law following society um, and uh, the change in social views. Okay. Uh, this lady, and then the lady there who should have a microphone with her in a moment or so. Name and observation question, please. <laughs> um, my name is Stephanie David, and I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, I'd like to thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, my question relates to the Court of Protection and deciding on best interests, and it is whether judges should be making that decision. I mean, given, as you've indicated, there are huge bureaucratic pressures on the judiciary at the moment. Is there not a danger that the subconscious rational outcome would be the easiest decision as opposed to necessarily what is best for the child or incapacitated person? Say it again. Put it differently. <laughs> um, I guess my question is that whether decisions regarding best interests should be made by judges, um, especially given the pressures on the judiciary with immense caseload, um, you have to turn around judges, um, judgments very quickly, and there's a danger maybe that you don't engage with the subject matter to the degree that might be necessary to uncover what might be the best interest for that individual concerned. Okay, thank Great. you. Thank you. Uh, I've got one, but we've got this one here. Madam. My name is Neha. I'm pursuing LLM at LSE. And my question is a simple question, rather, but I see it in a very complex way because um, having the power in hand to decide family law disputes that involves that involves maybe uh, such, a, uh, such a study of human behavior that involves betrayal, that involves cheat, that involves uh, all, all, all such things that actually encounter or have a first instance on your own faith, on your own trust, on your own beliefs, or the way you see your own personal life. So how difficult it is for a family lawyer or a family law judge or to decide such disputes, at the same time defining the blurred line of the seeing the society changing in front of you and not letting that affect your own beliefs and faiths? I mean, I think that is something... Uh, very difficult yeah. because I know a lawyer who, a divorce lawyer, who did not get married. 
who did not marry his whole life. I mean, that big impact. So I think law is such a profession that has such an interrelated impact or such a different to, uh, difficult to differentiate between personal and professional behaviors. Okay. So I just wanted to know okay. the response to that. No, that's great. I'm going to ask one, Peter, because it's been around this topic, and I, I don't know actually whether it affects your court, but you know, the legal aid cuts... Because you made a reference earlier to how you could trust these lawyers because they were presenting very well in front of you and all so on. And then a bit later on, you talked about the special responsibilities to the litigant in person. Now, golly, the issues you're talking about are deeply personal and terribly important. And in a way, the the importance of the lawyer there is to protect the individual from, from being disabled by their own feelings from putting their case. Are the legal aid cuts that are so well known now and so on, are they going to impact on this court and, and, and will, the, will the result be a huge explosion of litigants in person and will that add more pressure to your operation? Um, may, I, may I start with, um, with Sophie's point um, which is are judges the best people to decide uh, on best interests? Uh, particularly in relation to the, to the Court of Protection which many of you will know is a new court following the Mental Capacity Act of 2005 which took over in a formalised way um, the responsibility for making decisions on behalf of incapacitated people uh, which can range of course from people with um, dementia uh, through to people who who have had brain injury as a result of accident and every every, um, course in between. There's a very respectable argument for saying that there are better ways of um, deciding these matters than by a court process of the sort that we've got at the moment. And particular people will point to the the difference and sometimes inconvenient difference that exists between the Mental Capacity Act and the Mental Health Act. Um, And most people who know the tribunal system with the Mental Health Act think very highly of it in comparison to the um, proceedings of the Court of Protection, which are more expensive and slower. And uh, very often, until we manage to achieve a proper localization of the court, much more local to the people involved. Um, I I have have no special knowledge in relation to this except to say that I'm entirely sympathetic to the uh, the general point. I think that there are probably some decisions that are so important um, that they need to be conducted in a more formal um, courtroom setting, in particular decisions that have life and death um, implications. But I I agree with you that uh, there is nothing other than doing it that equips a judge to uh, have a particular skill at interpreting best interests. That um, if if this was a criminal case and the decision on best interests was to go to a jury, which was to decide guilt or innocence in our our jury systems, uh, I'm sure that you would get very good decisions about best interests from juries or individual members of juries. I, I am constantly aware of how much latitude one has in deciding what best interests actually consist of. Um, I hope that somewhat answers what you're saying. Um, legal aid cuts. Um, I'm, I'm not going to um, say anything that could be in, interpreted in any um, way that interferes with what is a democratic political process. Um, it's not proper for judges to um, uh, attempt to impose... Um, their view of the situation upon those who are responsible for the running of the system and uh, those who are taxpayers who fund it. Um, In practical terms, and I don't say this in order to make an argument for or against what is being done, it has a huge effect 
on the administration of, um, of justice. This is least felt at my level, even though I frequently have litigants in person in front of me, uh, because obviously at a higher court level you tend to get more lawyers. The people who uh, are really affected by it are the district judges, um, who are operating uh, without many of the supports that, uh, that uh, I have, um, who are operating in small, um, undefended local courts, which are in poor condition very often, um, and who are having to deal with difficult cases with angry people sitting uh, you know, closer than, uh, than, than we're sitting uh, at the moment. Um, and uh, you know, they may have um, a security guard, um, usually either particularly young or particularly elderly, uh, about 70 yards away down the corridor if something goes wrong. Um, that, is, that is where real judging is done. Um, and every time that you, um, you, you denature uh, the environment in which it happens, it makes it harder for them to do their jobs properly. From my point of view, um, having to deal with a case that involves any sort of law um, invo- where you have no lawyers um, can be quite scary. Uh, that you're meant to know. I'm meant to know what these conventions say. I'm meant to know what this statute says. I'm meant to know all the cases. Uh, in fact, we get used to having people present it to you repeatedly, and then you look at it and you say, yes, I know it. Uh, but when it isn't there, you have to go scurrying around to try and find the information. And then it takes twice as long because you have to have the whole conversation in public, um, I say in public, in the courtroom, uh, with everybody, uh, instead of them having done their preloading outside with their lawyers and then coming in and getting to grips with the real fact. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge impact. And the further, uh, the, the nearer you are to the, um, the local community, uh, the harder um, it gets. And so I think that is going to have relevance for the other question, which is to do with the impact of stress on the judiciary. Um, in fact, statistically, the judiciary are extremely healthy which is surprising considering their age, uh, but they obviously get a considerable amount of work satisfaction out of what they, out of what they do uh, because uh, levels of absenteeism are very much lower than they are in the public sector generally. I think that that is quite likely to change as stress levels um, rise. Um, in terms of family law in particular, I think you probably have to be a certain sort of person to, uh, to want to do it. Um, it, it involves um, uh, con- continuously facing emotion. Um, that if you, if you were a doctor, I'm sure that there are some people who would regard being a colorectal surgeon as being the last thing they would want to be, whereas if you're a colorectal surgeon, it's fascinating. Um, that in, in terms of uh, family law, um, for people who don't practice in that, in that field... Uh, I think a lot of them think it's a bit yucky. Um, and uh, it's only once you actually get past that and you're not worried about the blood um, that you begin to, I think, see what the, what the true interest of it is. So I'm sure that there are plenty of people who would find it a difficult area to practice in and to keep practicing in. Speaking for myself, um, I don't think that a judge's religious uh, persuasion or their ethics or their values need be of any great um, relevance uh, to the way in which they approach the task. I have colleagues who are, um, who, who are avowedly religious. I can think of one who's probably the best 
um, example of a fine family judge um, in, in recent times who happens to be religious, but you'd never have known it um, from any piece of work that he ever did. And I think that the lack of any particular worldview uh, needn't hamper you um, either. Thanks. We'll take one last tweet, because we're getting a lot of tweets. I'm going to take one last tweet, and then we'll need to wrap up, because we're running up. We've had a lot come in. We do we have, have had quite a few. I do, and I'm yeah. just trying to hit send so I can find it. Uh, here we are. Is Mr. Jackson trained in lie detection, or does, he go, uh, or does he just go with his intuition? Should there be more space for lie detection in court? That might be a bit Jeremy Kyle, but I thought that... I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, it feeds into what, what my last point was, which was, which was decision-making. Uh, a little has been written about how to assess witnesses. Um, we've even, I, I remember even having had a talk in Judicial College about um, what has been written about particular mannerisms um, and so forth, and what you, you know, what you might make of them, and uh, how a witness behaves in the witness box. Can you tell anything? I think we always come to the conclusion you tell nothing at all um, from from that. Uh, as to how you do it, I think it's the process of sitting and listening to somebody. You've been very generous in listening to me going on at great length. Uh, in court, of course, the, the, the shoe is on the other foot in that I'm sitting listening to somebody else going on at great length for the most part. And sometimes you just know that what you're listening to is, is right, that you can just tell that a witness is either brilliant at lying, absolutely, you know, that they had some quality that they could never have expected to inherit or to learn, and they've just managed completely to pull the wool over their eyes, or they're telling the truth, and it's usually, uh, of course, you reach the other conclusion. It's very hard to go into the witness box and spend a long time there um, without showing what you're like. Um, I, I find that, on the whole, if somebody is there for long enough, you get a sense, and that you can then not operate on intuition alone, but that you can meld that with rational thought about why is it that you have this sense? What are the components of um, your mistrust of this particular witness or your trust um, of that particular um, witness? But one of the hardest things to do is the fact-finding. We, uh, a large part of our work, for example, in relation to injuries to uh, babies or small children, uh, of course, doesn't have a a, a victim who can speak or indeed a victim who might even be alive um, and you're faced with for instance a, a child who has obviously been injured and, um, and died or very seriously injured and survived and it could only have been one of three people or something of this sort and you just have to listen and try and make your mind up. It's very a very stressful aspect of, of the job because you are very well aware of the hideous consequences of getting it wrong I mean, it's absolutely um, insupportable. Sometimes you think, um, would it be better if I knew what happened in um, what had really happened? Sometimes you think, would it be better when I've made a decision in a case if I knew what happened years down the line? Personally, as far as I'm concerned, that would be a frightening prospect mm. uh, because of how many occasions one would find that something you'd done uh, could be shown to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think uh, it's getting on towards 8 o'clock. I think we should probably finish it. Uh, this will be available, as you noticed, uh, as, I think, a videocast or a podcast or something, because what we try and do at Telesea is we try and make these available. You'd be amazed. Tens of thousands of people follow these LSE events 
remotely. And the Twitter thing is trying to give people a sense of being here even when they're not here. And I think it works very well. Mainly, the conversational dimension means that we did, I think, get under the skin of the thing. Uh, we do this a lot. We've got Joshua Rosenberg coming in January. Same format. We've got this promises to be a tremendously lively event about uh, LGBT rights in Russia. Uh, and then we have one of our debates. Uh, we've got a really good cast for that. And we've got uh, some of us, I think, answering questions about the law, mimicked from the BBC program. So we're trying to mix it up. Uh, but it needs good people. And like being in the witness box, you reveal what you're really like. If you've got an hour and a half and you're not hiding behind a script, you reveal what you're really like, don't you? So I think we should end uh, both by thanking you all for your excellent questions and your careful listening, but mainly uh, thanking Bradley for running this so well. Uh, but on behalf of LSE Law, just thanking Peter for coming along and being so honest and so clear, and at times really giving us a dramatic insight into judging. Peter, thank you very much.